Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know how to navigate the ever-changing marketing jungle. Today, I'm going to be joined by Jay Klaus, and we're going to explore how to create YouTube video podcasts. And I know you're thinking to yourself, oh, I know what podcasts are, but a YouTube video podcast? Yes, we're talking about a podcast that is optimized to perform on YouTube. And, you know, I think you're going to love this show because it's going to open your eyes to the possibilities of creating interview-based content that could crush it on YouTube. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. Also, if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Jay Klaus. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Jay Klaus. If you don't know who Jay is, you got to know Jay. He is the founder of Creator Science, a media company that helps people become professional creators and achieve financial freedom. His show is called The Creator Science Podcast, and his membership is called The Lab, a place for pro creators to experiment together. Jay, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Mike, I'm excited to be here. I'm feeling well-caffeinated, well-hydrated. I'm just feeling good. Hey, and the feeling is mutual. I am also well-caffeinated and well-hydrated. Today, Jay and I are going to explore creating video podcasts on YouTube. But before we go there, Jay, I would love to hear your story. How'd you get into podcasting? How'd you get into YouTube? Start wherever you want to start. So I grew up the child of high school educators. Most of my extended family are K through 12 teachers. And when I went to college, I didn't know what I was going to do. But the one thing I did know was that I would never be a teacher because everyone was doing it. I just didn't want to do that. But I didn't really know what other options were out there. In college is where I learned that entrepreneurship was even a thing. I didn't have that model to me as a kid. I, I met some peers actually in the dorm who had started businesses in high school and it blew my brain wide open. Like it, it just, I had no idea that I had that option. I don't have to like pick a major and then work a job for 35 years and collect a pension. What? So out of college, I was on the startup route. This is when Facebook and Airbnb and Uber were really big. So entrepreneurship to me was high tech software startup. Co-founded a software company. We did like the traditional fundraising route. We sold that company and then I took a job at another venture company. I still thought entrepreneurship was startups. But I went out on my own, trusted that I could figure out how to make this work, started freelancing, realized that freelancing is another way to do the self-employed thing, and found the world of online courses actually through lynda.com, which became LinkedIn Learning. And because my background was in startups, my background was in products, I saw the connection between content and products. 
And this was so exciting because in the software world, if I wanted to build a product, I had to work with engineers, I had to work with designers. My vision was never exactly how I, I thought it should be. But in content, I could write something exactly how I wanted to write something. I could make a podcast exactly how I wanted to make a podcast. And there wasn't this compromise. So I got enamored with the world of content creation. And as I started publishing, people started asking me questions about what I was doing, how I was doing it. And it became me teaching other people the world of content creation. And, you know, fast forward today, creator science is what I'm doing full time. Okay. So I want to back the clock up a little bit. So when did you go independent and what was your first course about? I went independent in 2017. That's when I started writing an email newsletter. It was not called creator science. It didn't even have a purpose other than proving to myself that I could publish consistently. My first courses on LinkedIn were actually about product management. And my first independent courses were about freelancing. And that was in 2019. Okay. So tell us a little bit about that journey and tell us how it led to the ultimate creation of what you're doing today. Yeah. Well, once I had built the muscle and proved myself that I was a creative person, because that was really in 2017 when I started this, I had this limiting belief that I was only an operator. I needed somebody else to have good ideas and I could execute them, but I wasn't somebody who was creative myself. And so the newsletter back then, I published something every day to subscribers for a year. And that was just me proving to myself, I am creative. I can create things. Over that time, I fell into a trap that a lot of people fall into, which was, I don't really know what I want to teach people yet, but I do know that I really want to be a creator. And so enough time passes. The thing that I think about the most is what it means to be a creator, how to be a creator, how to be successful as a creator. And so suddenly the thing that I know the most about is the thing itself. And you get this meta creator cycle. But I think what has helped me stand out and actually build a real business on this is I'm really good at contextualizing and teaching, frankly and empathizing with the reader and understanding where they are and breaking concepts down. A lot of that I learned with LinkedIn through LinkedIn learning and a lot of that that I've learned the hard way through trial and error. Systems perpetuate. So the more people that I taught how to do this, the more people had results, the more they told other people. Now I'm teaching more people. And today the newsletter has 50,000 subscribers. YouTube channel has 55,000 subscribers. The podcast has a couple million downloads. So it's just been self-perpetuating in that way. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is you decided to go off on your own after you got tired of the startup world and you need to prove to yourself that you are a creator. You've already proven to yourself that you could be an entrepreneur, right? Because that was a new concept. You thought everybody had to go work corporate America, right? So you, you got the entrepreneur thing, you figured that out, did a couple software companies. Just out of curiosity, what were the niches that you were developing software in? The first software company was called Tixers. It was a ticket platform. It was like a StubHub competitor. It was a little bit unique in terms of how we handled people selling tickets, but it was a, it was a ticketing company. And the second software business I worked within, I was an employee there, was in the healthcare space. And Got it. The, the US healthcare space, not a place I want to play in. So you went off on your own, you started a newsletter, and it sounds like it was in product marketing in the early days. Is that, was that kind of your domain expertise? You were teaching people how to do product marketing? Honestly, it was just a journal yeah. in the beginning. Got it. it was like me just talking about what I was thinking, what I was learning. It was very reflective. It, it didn't have any particular audience. It was very 
I would say immature, but I don't mean like in the style of content. It just wasn't flushed out yet. Well, and somewhere along the way, Pat Flynn works into this story because I'm in a mastermind with Pat. And I know that you worked somehow, some way supporting Pat. So what's that story? So in the beginning, the first real product I introduced as an independent creator was a 12-week mastermind program because I had met with somebody at the time. I had a really good network here, especially locally. And he said, you know, if I was you and I had the network that I that you do, I would consider facilitating mastermind groups. I didn't even know what that language meant. So he explained, he's like, well, if you can get a small group of people who do similar things together and you can facilitate that conversation and help them come out better for it, then people would pay for that. And I thought that sounds pretty good. I think I could do that. So I I started facilitating mastermind groups back in 2017. And on the back end of that, I was using Slack as a way to communicate with people in between and you know, we were meeting on Zoom, which all this sounds obvious now, but in 2017, Slack wasn't being used as a community tool. I had to explain to people what Zoom was and teach them how to download it. So it's pretty novel then. 2020 comes along and we have COVID. I didn't literally have COVID. The world had COVID. Right. Pat and the team at SPI started accelerating their plans for building an online community. And Pat's business partner, Matt Gartland, had experienced my Slack community And so he brought me in to consult on their community strategy using this new tool at the time called Circle. Got it. So we designed that together in 2020. And then in 2021, they acquired my existing Slack community to bring me on the team full time and build their community programs. And then somewhere along the line, you started this creator science brand, right? So why do you call it creator science? And when did you start it? And kind of what's the vision? Even going back to 2017, it's really been an evolution to this creator science brand because at the beginning I was working with startup founders and freelancers, but as time passed, I really found a niche for talented creative professionals who are trying to get clients. And then eventually people who were talented working one-on-one, but wanted to scale out of that. And the answer to scaling out of one-on-one work is content. So it's really just evolved to that point. The term creator wasn't even really used back then, but in really the middle of 2022 is when I started to, I was using the word creator a lot, but I didn't see people associating that word with my work yet. And I thought, why aren't people seeing my work in this lens? So I literally just put it in the brand name. I I rebranded to creator science because my particular way of teaching is very structured, very rigorous, very experiment driven. And so I said, I'm going to wrap that into the brand. And intuitively, people understood that much better. It's like, oh, so you like break down, analyze creators and give us what feels like a evidence-backed system to become one. And yes, that's exactly what I want you to feel about it. So everything from the podcast, the newsletters, the YouTube channel, all of that got wrapped into the creator science brand. Outstanding. So the reason you're on the show is because I saw some of the work that you were doing on YouTube. And I was extremely impressed. And for those of us that have podcasts, you know, a lot of us, uh, it's an audio first kind of experience. And I think what you have been doing is so intriguing and we're going to break it down a lot, but I wanted to set up this backstory so everybody understood like what we're going to talk about next. Cause Jay, you have to see what he's doing on YouTube with his podcasts because it's pretty impressive. So why should anyone whether they're creators or whether they're CEOs or founders of businesses, why should anyone consider a YouTube-centered podcast where video and YouTube is at the center of it? Make the case. Well, I think people have come to understand the value of podcasting. Let's start there. Right. In podcasting, you spend a lot of time with the listener 
very personally, one-to-one. And that creates deep relationships with that individual and your audience as a whole. And those relationships, because they're strong, tend to have higher purchase intent. So people want to do podcasting. A lot of people get into podcasting, though, not understanding the sheer difficulty of growing a podcast. Because a podcast, an audio-only podcast that is literally an RSS feed, does not have a built-in mechanism for introducing new listeners to you. If you're trying to get more listeners to your show, it's going to come from word of mouth or whatever you can do outside of the podcast to raise awareness for it and drive people to the podcast. So today, we see a lot of people pointing to YouTube and saying, well, hey, YouTube is great at connecting new viewers to your content. They have this mechanism built in. So what if we were podcasting on YouTube? In the beginning, a lot of people would literally just post like an audio file underneath a static image and they would put that on YouTube and and hope that some viewers found it that way. Today, people are doing more in video because the thesis is correct. YouTube is great at connecting new viewers to your content if YouTube sees that people are enjoying it and it keeps people on YouTube. The problem with the static image and audio, or even a lot of current video-based podcasts is that they don't have high viewer engagement. And so YouTube doesn't serve more views to it because it's not in YouTube, the platform's best interest. But if you do it well, it's a phenomenal way to introduce more people to you and your work and your podcast. But you have to create your video podcasts in a way that it can be successful on YouTube. Perfect. Well, and we're going to get into that. But before we do, let's be very transparent about the challenge. You know, you're carrying a rock up a hill a little bit here, right? So (laughs) what are some of the biggest challenges that stop people, if you will, from making YouTube-themed podcasts the right way? I'm going to assume that anyone listening to this has experienced YouTube at all sometime in the last year. When you you go to YouTube.com, you will see somewhere between eight and 10 videos that are recommended to you based on your previous viewing behavior. YouTube is saying, I've recognized that this video keeps people on the platform, people enjoy it, and specifically people who are like you. Maybe it's a channel that you've already watched before, but it's recommending videos to you. In that space, that space of videos that are being recommended to you is an equal opportunity space where your video will be competing with the best of the best on YouTube. I'm talking Mr. Beast, Emma Chamberlain. If the viewer might like that video, your video is gonna be served alongside of it, competing for that viewer's click and that viewer's intent. If that viewer does not click, YouTube gets a signal of, hey, fewer people click this video than this video. Let's pump video B rather than video A. So you literally have to learn how to compete for attention on YouTube, which is a difficult proposition for people who are focused 100% on YouTube. So how are you gonna do that as a podcaster? It's possible, but I want to set the table for you to understand the the challenge you're going uphill against. A lot of the videos that do well on YouTube, they are short in nature. It's less of an ask to say, hey, viewer, here's a video you might like. It's three minutes long. The commitment feels smaller. It's more likely that I I watch something, something shorter. A typical video that does well on YouTube has pretty high production value in video. There's a lot of editing that goes into it so that It is visually stimulating and retentive. Podcasts traditionally are not produced in this way. Right. (laughs) A lot of video podcasts, they are side-by-side, two-person views that stay 
that frame, that static side-by-side -side frame for the entirety of a much longer video. And so that is just not a winning proposition against the competition that is all other YouTube videos. You've got to do things differently if you want the video to be successful in introducing new people to you. So that's setting the table for the challenges here and why most people who are trying or have tried a video podcast on YouTube in the past have not been successful. What I love, first of all, I've tried all the things, right? Like I've been doing this show for, gosh, I don't know. I'm on your episode 599. That's 599 weeks in a row. That's a long time. I didn't have this gray hair for those that are watching the YouTube side of things uh, when I started this show. And when I started messing around with YouTube in the beginning, I just had a repeating animation with audio stuff on it. You know, that was, that was how I did it in the early days. And that clearly didn't work. And then eventually I got to the point where I'm doing what we're doing right now, which is I'm using a tool that allows both of us to be on the screen and us to toggle back and forth a little bit. But what you're doing, Jay, is very optimized for YouTube and very optimized in such a way that like you've had some videos been watched like a million times, right? Some of your podcast episodes, yeah. right? That's a big deal. Just so everybody understands that like my show, my show has been around for like whatever, I don't know how many years, a long time, more than a decade. And I don't think I've ever had an, a single episode have a million views, even though I get millions of downloads per year. This is the upside to what we're about to talk about is that YouTube, as Jay stated earlier, will take a video and it will continue to show it to new people over and over and over and over again in such a way that it can be massive upside. And if it's obvious that it's part of a show, well, then Jay you start to get more subscribers, right? And there might be some people who actually go from the video over to the audio side. Have you noticed that happening? I mean, it's probably hard to track, but have you noticed some people plopping from video over to the audio side? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the thesis. I hope people do that because we release more audio episodes than we do video episodes. So in fact, in that video that had, I think now it's at 1.7 million views, there is a short ad, quote unquote, where I pop up and say, hey, real quick, in case you didn't know, we actually have audio only episodes of this show that we publish every single week. And then it shows on screen what that looks like. If you want to check it out, go to creatorscience.fm slash playlist. That'll give you a good starting point. All right, back to the show. And so, yeah, we saw a bump, especially after that video's performance. But I also have this feedback system in my business overall that when people subscribe via email, it asks where they come from. It asks what led you to sign up for this list. And I'm seeing more and more people saying, I found your YouTube, then I found your podcast. Now I found my way here. So it's working. In fact, actually something Mike that you just made me think of that I hadn't thought of before. Historically, the, the audio podcast, which has existed for three and a half years, has just shy of 2 million downloads all time. That one video that we published two months ago. Almost the same, yeah. And the, almost the same number of views. Because even downloads isn't a great metric. Like really, views is more closely approximated to a podcast listen. Have I had 2 million listens? No. So that one video has had more impressions, more real consumption all time than the entire podcast history. And that's the opportunity. What do we need to be thinking about before we begin doing an interview? Because obviously, I know some things because we, we met prior to this interview to kind of talk through some of this stuff. But there's certain kind of uh, things we need to think differently about, right, before we start an interview in order to optimize it, if you will, for the possibility of video. Where do we start with that? Well, if we think again about the, the field of play here that you're competing on, which is mostly the YouTube home screen. Yes, YouTube search is still a thing that still drives views. 
But today, the majority of views are driven by YouTube's recommended features, the recommendations. And a lot of that happens on the homepage or in the sidebar next to a video. You are competing for YouTube's recommendation. So when I am a viewer, considering what video I may click on next, if at all, I'm given a limited amount of information about those videos that might get my attention. You have the visual component, which is the thumbnail. What does the thumbnail do? Does it grab my attention? Does it keep my attention? You have the title underneath that. And then sort of inherent in both of those things is I should be able to get an idea for what that video is by looking at that title and thumbnail. Those three things, title, thumbnail, and idea inherent. I refer to that as the package for the video. Every video has packaging. You want to make a compelling package so that people go into it. Think about it literally like a box, a gift. If I don't open the box, I won't know what's inside. I won't enjoy what's inside. So you got to make the box beg to be opened. Before we get into the packaging, I want to get back to, because there was this concept, right? That the actual content is created presumably before the packaging, unless you're telling me, well, there's some things you need to think about uh, before you actually do the interview so that you can have good packaging. But I'd love to kind of talk about like just the, the basic concepts of like, you told me, for example, not every interview makes its way to YouTube, right? So what are the elements of the videos that do make their way to YouTube? We won't make a video that we don't think we can package to be clickable. Okay. So I do think about the package before I do the interview. I think about the package before I ask the guest to come on the show. Oh, okay. And this is why I think a lot of video shows are not successful because they are trying to do packaging purely after the fact. And that's challenging because what most people do is they think, I want to interview Jay. And so they reach out to me, they interview me, and then they package that episode based on what we had talked about. Well, what do we talk about? We often talk about a lot of things. So how do, I, how do I accurately depict what we talked about if we went through four or five different subjects, but I have limited space in a title and thumbnail to tell you what we talked about? So I reverse engineered that process. And so do I, for the record, right? Because what people do not know necessarily about this show is Jay and I met and we kind of talked packaging almost, right? Before we actually did this interview, we decided what the theme was going to be. We decided what the common thread throughout all this is going to be so that I could package this up <laughs> in a way that I would for my audience. So I think I'm beginning to wrap my head around to keep going. There are, there are two ways that you can package an interview, assuming your podcast has a guest or even someone else that you're talking about. You can package things based on the, the name, face, relationship that already exists to that guest or you can package it based on what you talk about. And for our show, we have a lot of guests who would be unknown to the majority of YouTube viewers. So if I show up to YouTube and I'm seeing a video recommended to me that's based on this person's name and identity and I don't know who that person is, I'm not gonna click on it, it's not, it's not interesting. Even if we talked about something that's very deeply interesting to me, I wouldn't know that if the packaging is really just based around that person's identity. So we tend to assume that our package is stronger when it's based on the idea inherent than the name of the person. And if the person is known, then we, we tag team and do both with their face and the thumbnail, maybe their name and the title. So typically what I'll do is I'll say, yes, I could talk to Mike about a wide range of things, but this video will be more successful if I talk to Mike about one narrow idea deeply so that I can package this video around that idea. But when the viewer clicks it and watches it, they are 
retained as a viewer because I am in fact delivering on that idea through the entirety of the video. Some people will have an interview that's pretty wide ranging. They touch on three subjects. They package the video based on one subject. If I click on that as a viewer, once I get that bit, I'm probably gonna leave. I don't care about the other two things. That's not why I click. So there needs to be alignment between what you're promising, the content itself, and you should make that alignment be attractive to a YouTube audience who probably doesn't know you yet and also probably doesn't know the guest. I love that. Okay, so some of the things we talked about when, and by the way, this this stuff that Jay's talking about applies to audio as well, believe it or not, because I do feel like a lot of podcasts I listen to randomly pick a title based on some random subtopic that was talked about and there was no structure to it. But one of the things we talked about when we were prepping for this is who are you competing with and how do you make it more compelling? Talk to me a little bit about who are you competing with specifically on YouTube and how to make something more compelling once you know kind of where you're going to go with this. Well, you're competing with everybody. You're competing with all other creators on YouTube. And yes, YouTube does some filtering and some recommending based on what they know about you as a viewer. So while I say you're competing with Mr. Beast, that's true. But if your viewer doesn't care about Mr. Beast, doesn't know Mr. Beast, you might not be being recommended right next to his videos specifically. But you are being recommended next to seven other videos that YouTube thinks this viewer will care about. So you are competing with potentially everything. But in reality, you're competing with everything that YouTube thinks this viewer will sound interesting. And people who are really doing YouTube as their main strategy, main content strategy, main thing, they're probably putting more thought into the package, title, the video, the thumbnail. Thumbnails themselves are kind of scroll stoppers on YouTube. So the most visually appealing thumbnail will often get the most attention. So to make things more appealing, you have to care about these things. <laughs> and whether you have the skill set to make these things more appealing or you need to hire somebody, these are realistic conversations you need to have with yourself. Because if I am unwilling to do the work, to hire the help, to make this package visually compelling, the video won't get views, is it worthwhile to do in the first place? And a lot of people will hear this and they'll say, actually, no, it sounds like YouTube isn't where I should be putting my time and effort. And that's okay. I, I, I'm glad to save you some of the time and effort because if you can spend that time instead incrementally improving where you market your podcast outside of the podcast itself and drive more views or more listens, that might be more effective than producing a video asset that doesn't get views. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. So let's talk about the packaging. You mentioned the title, the thumbnail, and then the video itself, which you've referred to as video inherent. 
I think I got that right. Video inherent is the substance of the video. Is that how you're using the idea? Yeah, the, the idea. Okay. So give us a couple of strategies that you're employing specifically with the title, the thumbnail and the way you actually edit your videos as well, because I think that's a key part of this for you at least, because you're doing something, you're doing some post-production work that I think is really important for people to wrap their head around. Yeah. Well, in the thumbnail, one thing we believe in is this, I think it's called the three aspect rule where your thumbnails should be visually appealing, but also fairly simple. There should be no more than like three elements to each thumbnail that can capture my attention. That's one thing we think about a lot. We will often do what is called social hacking, where if we do think that the guest has some name or facial recognition to a YouTube audience, we'll put that in the thumbnail because that's going to make things more clickable. Mr. Beast does this for his own videos with his own face. He knows that I have so many viewers that know my face. If I put my face in the thumbnail, they'll think this is a Mr. Beast video. They're more likely to click. People who are not Mr. Beast, but talk about Mr. Beast, they'll put his face on their video too, because that's hacking the social proof that he has. So you said this three aspect reel, keeping it appealing, but simple. So what are the three different aspects? I, I understand I could hypothesize that they might be the words. They might be the logo. If you're going to have a brand element on there in the background, but I don't know exactly what those aspects are. It can be anything. So we did a video recently about thumbnails and I talked to people about their favorite thumbnails ever. And one was, this is the title was something along the lines of, this is how airplane engines are tested. And the thumbnail was an airplane engine, a guy in a reflective jacket with his arms throwing and a chicken. Those are the only three elements in there. No words, just, just the visuals. Okay. No words. If you would have put words on that thumbnail, it might have performed worse because now we have four elements that my eyes are looking at. It's just most thumbnails that succeed have no more than three visual elements to them. So in a lot of our videos, we do have words. So typically what we'll have is words, the face of the guest, and our studio background. So it can be anything. But if you look at this and you're like, there's a lot going on. I have like, I have a title, I have a subtitle, I have my face, I have the episode number over here. It's too much. It's too complicated. A lot of people put for podcasts specifically, they put like their episode number on the video. But if I'm new to your show, the episode number means nothing to me. The show name even means nothing to me. These are overcomplicating the visual plane, making it look messy, making it look less professional. So back to the title, a lot of times we choose a title for our audio podcast because it's already predetermined. But I'm guessing that you may not necessarily go with that title for YouTube, right? So talk to us a little bit about title. We do typically have different titles in audio versus in video. Audio show existed first. We had kind of a naming convention for those episodes where I have episode number, colon, guest name, hyphen, what the idea is about. And I can get away with that in audio because my audience already knows me. They've subscribed because they've already found the show and this is what they've come to expect. If I did that same title format on YouTube, it would absolutely bomb. Because if I think about the first thing I'm seeing in a YouTube title, if that is pound sign number, colon. That's not interesting. That means nothing to me. I don't care what number of episode this was of your podcast that I've never heard of before. I just want to know what this video is about. And again, if, if I don't know the guest either, putting their name up front doesn't mean anything. So a lot of our episodes, you'll see, we title it, meet the person doing interesting thing. Meet the woman who solved YouTube shorts. Oh, interesting. So it's telling you, honestly, this is a study of somebody else. It's kind of implicitly saying this is an interview. But it's really answering the question, why should I care? And that does apply. I think we would probably have more success in audio if we took the same titling approach from YouTube to audio. It would apply to email subject lines. It's really how quickly can you tell me why I should care? 
Have you found certain kinds of titles outperform? Like, are you going with shorter titles, longer titles? I mean, it's just the copywriter. I mean, that's very curious about what you've experimented with. There is a character limit we stay underneath. I think it's 75 characters that we try to stay within because outside of that, it starts to get truncated. And if the title's truncated, it's not telling me anything. It's not useful. So we, we do try to keep it shorter than 75 characters. And what we find is opening up a curiosity loop is really what you're trying to do. I've heard this described as if somebody sees this title or really the whole package, they should feel uncomfortable not clicking on it. Like they, they need to be like, I need to see that. I need to know what that is about. Ali Abdal recently put out a video. The title was everything's changed hyphen life update. Whoa, what's, what's going on there? Like I, I didn't want to watch a 45 minute video, but I am very curious about what this person who I respect and admire is changing. It sounds like a big deal. I feel like I need to make time for that. That's the type of discomfort, open loop you, you kind of want to make with your title because that's what's going to get the click. Because if you're not, those seven other videos probably are. There's a lot of YouTubers who are doing really big things with podcasting. And typically they have their own studios and professional production crews and they're spending a fortune doing the stuff, right? And you probably know them more than I do, but you know, like there's a lot of people that have really decked out studios, you know, and they bring the guest in and they have multiple cameras and they have switchers and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people managing all this. And the way most podcasters do it is not that way. <laughs> most of us are not in the same room together. You know, most of us are actually connected over the internet like we are right now. And you seem to have figured out a way to take that kind of an interview where you are interviewing someone who is in a different location than you are and have figured out how to make that work on YouTube. So talk to me a little bit about how you've been able to make these remote interviews perform specifically on YouTube. I mean, a lot of times I just ask people like, how many times have you gone on YouTube and sat down and watched like a Zoom recording with rapt attention? And the answer is like, almost never, unless I'm required to for some reason. Those videos just don't even get recommended because they perform so poorly. But when we do remote interviews, a lot of time that's exactly the type of asset people are uploading is this Zoom-esque, but you know, side-by-side -side consistent view of these two speakers. And it's, it's not visually interesting. It doesn't take advantage of the visual medium. It's not additive to the experience. I would get just as much out of those shows listening to them as I would watching them. So why would it be on YouTube? Why would I expect that it would perform well in a native video medium? So we looked at this and we said, okay, we're not going to make a studio. We don't even have the leverage to pull in the same guests that I can get on the remote show. I, I'm not going to fly them to Columbus. They wouldn't do that. Even if I flew to them, that would be tremendously expensive. It's a non-starter. So what can we do with remote shoots to make them visually interesting? take advantage of a visual medium. And so one thing that we do is we take full advantage of the, the real estate. A lot of people with their side-by-side -side videos, that cuts off or that leaves a lot of vertical space above and below the frame where they put some branding behind it, but it's not really visually stimulating over the long term. So we will only have two speakers on the screen at a time. But when we do, we zoom in on the, the frames to take full length of that that video frame but most of the time we're switching in between the two speakers so that the full frame is taken up by the person who is speaking predominantly explain full frame for the audio listeners who don't understand what you mean by full frame if you think about a video player the aspect ratio is 
16 by nine, right? So when anything that can be shown in the player, we want all of that real estate in the player to be moving video, something from the camera's output, not a graphically designed frame around it. Got it. And for those that don't know, what we have here on this show is we have Jay really big, we have me tiny, and then we have kind of uh, branding behind it. So what Jay's really talking about is a situation where Jay is full screen and I only show up when I have something to say. And that allows it to look a little bit more like television almost, right? Is that kind of where, or, or higher quality, right? Yes. And even when you show up, we edit these things manually. We don't take the output of, of a tool. Tools often limit what you can do. But even if you show up, we might put you as a circular, smaller version of your feed on top of my video, as opposed to introducing the space. I like that. So that's one thing we do, but we try to go further than that. We're, we're living in a generation of TikTok where we expect visual stimulation and difference just like constantly. So what would it look like to make a video more visually stimulating in a podcast? Some of it is simple as switching back and forth between speakers. Some of it is slow zooms into the speaker, slow zooms out or quick zooms in. You're, you're changing the frame is, I would call everything in, in focus, the frame, changing the frame somehow. Are you doing that mostly in the beginning of the video to get people kind of locked in? Or are you doing that throughout the entire interview? We do it throughout. It does slow down a little bit. Towards the end, we do put particular attention in the beginning of the video, but we, we do it throughout. Because the style of our video is also trying to get very practical, tactical ideas and advice. So things that are literally worth writing down. So we will move me out of the screen, move the speaker out of the screen, introduce like a virtual notepad essentially, and highlight specific things that the guest is saying. So I'm not just hearing it, but I'm also reading it. It makes it more likely that I'm going to comprehend it. Sometimes we have like a little toaster pop up with like an insight, just trying to give people a reason why the visual experience is better than listening to it. I love that. That's that's a lot of it. We, we do a lot of B-roll. The nice thing about the nature of our show is we're talking to creative people who have made creative assets. So if we're talking to another YouTuber who's explaining how, hey, in this video that I did, I, I learned this thing, we can literally show that video on screen as he's talking about it. So again, just another reason or another way you can add depth and richness to the conversation. So I'm not just hearing this person describe a thing. I can also experience it in real time right now too. So a lot of B-roll that we pull in. You know, what I think you do, which is really exciting is this teaser that you do at the front of the video, which is almost like a summary, if you will, of some of the key highlights of the video. Explain how you do it because there's some people listen to podcasts like maybe how I built this with Guy Raz, you know, you'll hear a little 60 second clip maybe at the front of it, which is just kind of like one of the interesting clips, but you seem to take it a little bit further specifically on YouTube. Yeah, I think this applies to audio too. A lot of people don't do a very good job at the beginning of their episode, again, kind of reinforcing why I should care. Right. I heard a stat recently, this applies to books, but I think you could probably extrapolate it to all forms of media. They said the average reader of a book gets 17% through. So if you look at retention curves on anything, you see retention drop over time. And so if retention is going to drop over time, the better you can perform initially, the longer you can hold the initial attention, the more people are going to finish it. This is an insight we got from Patty Galloway, who's well known as one of the better YouTube consultants out there. He looks at our retention graph and he said, You're, you have a huge drop off right away. People click the video, they're not interested. Maybe they realize this is a podcast. So he said, one of the better things you can do is 
really make the first 90 seconds more compelling, then more people will view it, more people will finish it. So we took that advice and we started producing completely separate intros from the rest of the conversation. I would have a conversation with a guest, but then we produce a fully separate introduction to that episode after the fact. And I even record new video, new voiceover, more directed camera. And those introductions tend to have a lot of B-roll, a lot of on-screen graphics. They have animations, they have moving text. They're almost videos within their own right. They're like little videos within the bigger video, right? They are like trailers. In fact, we, we export that introduction to the video as a self-contained video trailer that I post on Twitter. I post on LinkedIn to say, hey, we have a new video. It's about this person. Makes for a very compelling reason for someone to break out of whatever social media session they're in and say, I want to actually bookmark that video and watch that because it's, it's really a highlight reel of what you can expect from this full conversation. Well, and I would imagine once you started doing this and you saw you got those things dialed in so you could get that retention high for the first 90 seconds, that just started blowing up your videos on YouTube, right? Because all of a sudden they were probably showing these videos to all sorts of other people, right? Yeah. This is my belief on how the YouTube algorithm works. I think everything YouTube does is trying to maximize for time spent on platform. So your video as an individual, it's saying, is it better for me, YouTube, the platform to recommend this person's video versus person B? Well, which video keeps people on platform longer? So while our average view duration as a percentage, we typically have like 20 to 25% average view duration. People on average finish 20 to 25% of the video. Some videos will have 75%, 90% retention for their video. But if that's a four minute video and they have 75% retention, that means they're keeping viewer on platform for three minutes. Whereas my 25% is keeping a viewer on platform for almost 10. If I'm YouTube, which video would I rather recommend if that person is equally interested in both? So yeah, once we started getting more people to stick around for longer, our average view duration went up. You're never going to have 100% on a podcast. It's just too long. Every video with length loses average view duration. But we kept people on platform longer, which means that we were rewarded with more impressions from the YouTube algorithm. Those impressions convert at some click-through rate to views. And that number just goes up the more that we make the beginning better. It's got to take you a lot of time to edit these. I would imagine you're not publishing these at the exact same time you're publishing the audio episodes. And it's got to be a lot of money, I would imagine as well, right? Yeah, we release our target as two videos per month and we release an audio episode every week. So we typically have a two to one ratio of audio to video episodes. And part of that is because on the audio show, I want to interview creators who might not be relevant to a, a YouTube viewer. You know, we're talking about LinkedIn, or we're talking about email, and the YouTube viewer, the casual YouTube viewer might not care about that. So we tend to prioritize making video episodes out of videos we think we can package for a video viewer. And there are fewer of those. And we would rather put more time and effort into fewer videos to have an outsized return than to kind of skate by and publish everything in video, but none of those videos are doing particularly well. And that is expensive. I have a, I have a full-time editor. I have a thumbnail designer. We have an audio engineer who also works on the video show, but it's not cheap. It is not cheap, but it is, as you have discovered through your entrepreneurial journey, content is really the key, right? To uh, success with the business. Thus the name of the show, Creator Science, because there is science to this. There's art and science to this, but you are, my friend, really dialing in the science side of this. 
Jay, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. If people want to follow you on the socials, is there a preferred platform if they want to connect with you? And then also if they want to find out more about your business and what you've got going on, where do you want to send them? I would just say go to creatorscience.com. If you're an email person, that's where our emails come from. If you're a podcast person, find the Creator Science Podcast. If you are on YouTube, search for Creator Science. Awesome. Jay Klaus, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Thanks for having me. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 599. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. And if you've been a longtime listener, would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter slash X. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may your marketing keep evolving. Catch you next time. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.